Hi there. I'm David Kelly, Chief Global Strategist here at JP Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. In this, our first season, we're focusing on future trends, the themes, ideas, and issues that will shape our future and the investment environment, not just tomorrow, but for decades to come. One of the hallmarks of the last long economic expansion was a very low level of long-term interest rates, driven in part by low inflation and in part by very easy central banks. In the immediate aftermath of the coronavirus pandemic, central banks drove rates to even lower levels. However, this has made the fixed income environment even more challenging for investors. To discuss all of this, I'm joined today by Jordan Jackson, Global Market Strategist on our Market Insights team. Thank you for joining us, Jordan, and welcome to Insights Now. So Jordan, I know we're going to talk a lot about the future of bond markets with rates expected to be close to zero for a long time to come. But before we get to that, just how do we get here in the first place? Thanks, David. And and that's a great question and a timely one because the Federal Reserve has signaled that they're going to keep interest rates rates low uh, for quite some time here. Now, I think it's important for us to take a step back and remember back in March at the outset of the pandemic, uh, the actions that the Federal Reserve had took at that point. Um, Remember, uh, uh, there was a mad dash for cash and and investors were selling everything from their most riskiest equity assets all the way to, to, to their safest government assets. And that created a lot of volatility uh, and broadly within capital markets, uh, as well as in uh, fixed income markets. Now, back in March, in order to uh, uh, to 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 smooth market functioning, uh, the Federal Reserve had stepped in and essentially had slashed rates down to to the zero lower bound, zero percent. And they also embarked on on quantitative easing. And that's very simply uh, massive purchases of of government bonds and and agency mortgage backed securities. Uh, What? this did in turn was uh, anchor long-term interest rates. Uh, we saw by mid-March uh, the 10-year Treasury yield trading about one and a quarter. Uh, by the er, by early April, uh, the 10-year Treasury yield was trading down to about 60 basis points. Uh, fast forward to today, the Fed is still committed to, uh, to 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 asset purchases. They're purchasing Treasuries at roughly 80 billion uh, 80 billion dollars a pace per month. Uh, and so what this has done is this kept long-term bond yields relative low. We still have the 10-year Treasury yield trading below 1%. Um, and, and, and in doing so, the Fed is trying to ensure uh, uh, low interest rates, um, and this is in turn hurting savers, uh, but, but, but trying to encourage uh, a bit of investment spending as well as uh, uh, consumer spending uh, through the broader economy. So, Jordan, um, that's, that's a good background as to how we, we got to this point. But do you think that's actually been effective? I mean, have low interest rates been effective at stimulating the economy? Well, it's it's, it's important to recognize that you know, access to credit and being able to easily borrow um, is very, very important to, to stimulating economic activity. Um, and so if, if, if interest rates are, are low, um, you know, you or I are more willing to go out and, and make that big purchase, uh, buy a washing machine or a dryer or or purchase a house, uh, for for example. So they are, low interest rates are a useful tool in trying to to stimulate economic, stimulate economic activity. Uh, it's also very uh, encouraging for, for business businesses as well, businesses looking to uh, invest in property, plant, and equipment in order to, to, to grow. So uh, it's very important in stimulating economic activity. Uh, however, when we look at the, the, the nature of the pandemic itself and, and the fact that um, we've all had to sort of quarantine ourselves within, uh, within our, 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 our houses, um, 
what this has essentially done is sort of shifted spending patterns, shifted consumer patterns, and 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 consumption has continued to remain fairly robust, importantly uh, because of fiscal stimulus. Um, and so when we think about the importance or the impact that interest rates have had, um, the most impact that we've seen is from an economic perspective is really in the housing market. Uh, but elsewhere, we think the, the, the bigger economic impact has actually been on the fiscal stimulus side of the equation. So they have done a, a good job in making sure capital markets function, they've got plenty of liquidity. They brought rates low, and that does something to stimulate the the housing market. But let's look a little bit more at this this fiscal issue. I mean, how has the Federal Reserve helped enable fiscal policy here? That's an interesting question. Um, And and the interplay of monetary policy and fiscal policy has been absolutely critical uh, to to this recovery. when we think back to fiscal year 2020, uh, the year that ended uh, September 30th, uh, the federal government ran a deficit of about $3.1 trillion. Uh, the Treasury, uh, or the Federal Reserve, excuse me, essentially financed $2 trillion uh, of that $3.1 trillion over, the, over a six-month period. Um, now, what that, uh, again, essentially does and the macro implications of this is that it is going to encourage uh, additional fiscal stimulus or fiscal spending spending from the federal government. Um, the, the CBO projects that the federal government is going to run a deficit of $1.8 trillion in fiscal year 2021, the fiscal year that we're in now. Uh, and we expect that the, uh, the, the Federal Reserve, if they continue on their pace of, of about $80 billion of purchases of treasuries per month, uh, they could fund about a trillion of that. Now, within that $1.8 trillion deficit, uh, it's important to mention that this is not including any additional fiscal stimulus uh, that we are expecting to come in, in the first quarter of 2021. Now, this stimulus could come in the package of we, what we expect to between the $500 billion and a and trillion dollars, uh, depending on what gets pushed through. But essentially what we're doing, David, is, is we've embarked on our own early uh, experiment of, of modern monetary theory. Uh, now, not to dive too deep into to that concept, uh, but it's essentially an environment in which you can uh, the, the central bank can can print money and purchase government bonds uh, so long as that you don't uh, cause runaway inflation. Now, uh, we inflation is not necessarily a concern uh, today, uh, but it, it, with the combination of, of fiscal stimulus and monetary sp- stimulus that continues on well into 2021 could stoke some inflationary pressures as we look to the second half of, of 2021 uh, and in the early parts of 2022. So clearly, monetary policy and fiscal policy working together has done a lot of work to really help sustain the economy through this pandemic and hopefully build for a, a better future once this pandemic is over. But of course, that might be at the expense of the future expense of fixed income investors. So how should fixed income investors think about all this? So that's a great question. And and generally speaking, as, we, as the economy begins to recover, uh, as fiscal stimulus and, and monetary sp- stimulus combined uh, do help to to sort of uh, uh, bridge the gap from 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 today to when we have a, a vaccine through the broader economy, there is a risk that interest rates could gradually move higher and fixed income investors uh, may be hurt uh, in the process. Uh, but I think it's really important from a longer term perspective. There is a, a very very tight relationship between current yields on bonds and forward returns over the next five to 10 years. Now, when we look at the current yield on a, the, 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 the broader fixed income market, the Barclays, U.S. Barclays aggregate, uh, current yield trading at about one, one 
in a quarter, 1.2%, suggests that over the next five years, uh, in fixed income investors can only expect about 1.5% return um, annualized over the next five years. That's simply just not going to cut, uh, not going to cut the mustard for, for most of our, uh, our clientele and investors. Now, where can investors look for uh, additional yield and, and some potential uh, return opportunities within the fixed income space? We think first, uh, looking at more traditional asset classes, uh, credit uh, is going to have to be a, a bigger piece of the portfolio for, for investors, uh, but it's going to have to be uh, uh, through, through we think, an active approach, uh, identifying companies um, that have strong balance sheets uh, that'll be able to, um, you know, be able to also transform their businesses in in a post-pandemic uh, society. Uh, we also think that um, hybrid securities, actually, by, by way of things like preferreds, um, can also be an interesting income play for, for investors. Now, remember, within the preferred universe, roughly about 70% of preferred issuers are financials. Um, and so when we look at bank balance sheets today, banks are far better capitalized than they were prior to the financial crisis. Uh, when we look at common equity tier one ratios, for example, we recognize that banks uh, you know, are, are very uh, capitalized. And, and given that we've seen these uh, significant loan loss provisions, uh, we think that uh, an, uh, an extended period of economic stress would be needed in order for financials to, to begin to cut those dividends on their preferred shares. Uh, but that's not necessarily the case. Uh, you can get roughly about five and a half to, to six percent uh, on preferred shares uh, today. Um, Another part uh, that, that could potentially fit the bill are, are, are high-quality dividend-paying uh, stocks. Um, but investors are really going to want to look the, look underneath the hood when trying to find equities within uh, trying to find income, excuse me, uh, within equities. Uh, when we look at uh, the, the nature of the pandemic and, and the companies that have been most hardly hit, um, most dividend cuts and suspensions have been concentrated in sectors like energy, uh, consumer, consumer staples, REITs, your traditional high dividend paying sectors, where in contrast, your traditional low yielding sectors like technology and healthcare have managed to consistently grow their dividends uh, over the past decades and maintain them during the financial, during the crisis. Uh, the, 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 uh, uh, the, the pandemic crisis that we've just experienced. And so what we would suggest is that investors may want to look for uh, dividends in those sectors that have shown to be more stable rather than just for those sectors that have been paying a, a high dividend. Uh, I would say lastly, I think emerging market debt uh, can also be a very interesting play uh, in order to uh, step out a bit on the fixed income extended sectors um, to, to, to search for yield. Um, we're in an environment through a lot of emerging market economies in which uh, inflation is low. Uh, this can allow central banks to remain accommodative across emerging markets. Uh, and this plays well uh, in an environment in which yields are so low domestically, you can get roughly 5 to 6% uh, absolute yields uh, by going into, uh, into emerging markets. So plenty of challenges for fixed income going forward, but also some opportunities. When you look overall at all of this, how does this fit into portfolio construction for fixed income investors? I think it means balance. Uh, we don't want to abandon our core fixed income holdings altogether. Uh, we still think that they are going to play a ballast uh, to the portfolio. And we do think if there is a significant or, or, or correction in, in equity markets, uh, bonds are still going to be able to, to, to hedge uh, that, that equity risk. Um, 
But uh, we're going to have to, uh, again, as I mentioned earlier, increase, looking to increase uh, exposure to some of those more extended credits, extended sectors, excuse me, sectors like uh, a more investment grade credit, uh, high yield in a, in a smart way, uh, and, and, and emerging, and emerging market, emerging market debt. Um, again, it's going to be, I, we, we do think it has to be an active approach uh, within fixed income and uh, identifying those companies that are going to have strong balance sheets in a post-pandemic society, uh, as well as emerging economies uh, that, that have better fiscal positions uh, relative to, the, to, to, other, to other emerging, uh, uh, emerging equities, emerging fixed income economies, excuse me. Um, and then more broadly, I think uh, within within uh, stepping out of the fixed income context, we do think that alternatives actually uh, could play an interesting role uh, in, in a portfolio. Um, private assets like core real estate and core infrastructure uh, have shown to f uh, provide uh, uncorrelated return streams relative to equities and fixed income and can provide stable income for investors that may not uh, that are not able to get those in their core fixed income allocations. Well, well thank you, Jordan. Uh, that's uh, very interesting stuff. And, and thank you very much for joining us on Insights Now. Thank you for having me, David. Thank you all for listening to our first season of Insights Now, where we covered future trends, global perspectives and long term investment themes. Be sure to tune into season two, where we will discuss the basics of some different asset classes and how they can fit into portfolios today. We'll also be joined by some special guests as we look at investing in the wake of the pandemic in Insights Now. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions in current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate, including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide.